After millions of eyes were glued to the intense confirmation hearings of Judge Brett Kavanaugh last week, the Supreme Court begins its session today without its ninth seat filled. Here's one of the most historic cases from last year. We'll hear argument today in case 17-965, Trump, President of the, Donald Trump, President of the United States versus Hawaii. Mr. Francisco. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. We'll talk about what's on the docket for this term. Plus, over the past few months, three female elected officials have been working on recommendations to stop harassment in Illinois politics. Here's State Representative Carol Ammons on WSIU. I think what we've seen is there is a need uh, for us to uh, equalize uh, representation at every single level of government. But first, how are all of these headlines affecting our children? We'll talk to a family doctor about what she's seeing and how to discuss these issues at home. That's all coming up this hour on the 21st. Stay tuned. Welcome to the 21st. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Coming up this hour, we'll be talking about a new report out that hopes to change a culture of sexual harassment in Illinois politics. One of the co-authors, State Representative Carol Ammons, joins us. And later in the hour, as the Supreme Court is back in session today, two Illinois law professors from Northwestern and Loyola share their analysis of what's ahead. I hope you enjoyed your weekend, maybe hopefully even taking a break from the intense news that was last week to enjoy time with your family and friends It's natural that all of these news events, and not just last week, might lead to heated dinner table conversations, even in-car conversations. And how we engage our kids in these conversations is a topic of concern for Illinois Dr. Geetha Maker-Clark. She practices family medicine on Chicago's North Shore, and she wrote a post on Facebook last week, an unsolicited PSA from your local family doctor that pointed out, especially now, what you say and how you say it matters very much, especially when it comes to our children. Dr. Maker-Clark is with me now from her office at North Shore University Health System in Evanston. Dr. Maker-Clark, welcome back to the 21st. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. You know, after you wrote this Facebook post, there were so many people who were sharing it, who said they appreciated their thoughts. And there's one line you wrote that really struck me. You wrote that our children are living in this. This is their childhood. And it really struck me to think about this from the perspective of how this, what the environment is like for children who are growing up these days. Yeah, you know, I think it's something that we need to really take a good look at because we are living in a reality of a very heightened and heated political climate that sort of feels like a barrage of you know, bad news day to day. And it's hard enough for most adults to be coping with this level of intensity. But when you think about our children and especially our adolescents, you know, they have constant access to the news media through their social media, through their email accounts, through school. And this is a daily and constant part of the fabric of their childhoods. So it made me pause and really think about, you know, what what we all think about when we think about childhood. We think of sort of a freewheeling time of life, a time of outdoor activity and bike rides and friendships and new and new activities and newness. And what is it like for these adolescents growing up with so much fear and anxiety that's not just displayed by their peers, but by their adults around them as well? 
And you mentioned, Dr. Maker-Clark, that in terms of what you see in your office, you said you see problems with anxiety and depression as a family practice doctor even more than problems like strep throat. Is that the case for kids or for adults or for both? Well, my practice is an integrative medicine practice, so I do tend to see people uh, who are coming to me with a particular interest in wellness, you know, and in, in, in a particular interest in trying to um, improve their overall lifestyle. And in my adolescent population in particular, I'm seeing a lot of anxiety and depression. And when we think about that anxiety, depression, you mentioned particularly when it comes to adolescence. I wanted to ask you about that sort of that news element. Do you how much do you think is, is it because kid, from what you've seen, kids being connected to, to things or how much also is it just an environment of maybe adolescents talking about this with other adolescents, not just adults? That's right. So. I think there's there's a couple of different aspects of what's going on for adolescents. So the the adolescent brain has an increased vulnerability as it is to depression and anxiety. They're, the brain is very sensitive to stress at this age. And there's a certain amount of normal anxiety that's just part of adolescence. Um, but the brain is very plastic at this time of life and it's still developing. And I think that there's some of the issues that I I was sort of alluding to in that post were that school is bringing up current events, and so they may be having robust discussions in the classroom around what's going on in the country and in the world. Certainly, they're speaking about these same issues with their friends, but then coming home and then having parents who um, are also really deeply engaged and outraged adds another layer to an already very difficult stage of life and maybe a difficult time of day for them when they're just finishing up a long day at school. Elizabeth Gilbert, the writer, posted something this morning on Instagram that really spoke to me. She said, you know, it's Monday morning and it's time for the new barrage of of news to come through and, and to get high on the crack pipe of outrage. And that really spoke to me because I felt like, yes, you know, we really are waiting for the next you know, sort of negative piece of news to come our way to sort of increase our levels of outrage. And while this is duly important for us to be activated and to be doing the good work where many of us are trying to do in the world, I think we need to also be doing an integrity check with ourselves and saying how much of this needs to spill out into our children's lives. You know, do we need to be more mindful of these conversations that we're having at home with our partners, with our friends, and how much outrage that we're bringing into our home environment when our children are already experiencing, you know, their own challenges in their school days. And Dr. Maker-Clark, I want to come back to one thing you said uh, just about the adolescent brain and how much uh, more maybe heightened everything is when you are an adolescent. When we just think about sort of the physical characteristics that are uh, creating a safe environment, how important are things like or creating a healthy or nurturing environment? How important are basic things like just making sure that there's enough sleep, that everyone's getting enough sleep? How important is something like that? Oh, it's so vital. It's so vital. I mean, I, one of the, the most common complaints I see among adults and adolescents in my office is that they can't sleep. 
And that I think is a spillover from the amount of anxiety and fear that many of us are harboring. It makes it very difficult to get a restful sleep. Um, and that's really negatively affecting us, our moods and our productivity and our concentration. So yes, focusing back on the basics is really important. Just sort of making sure the nutrition is there, that we're coming back to the family table and we're trying to make sure that that dinner table conversation is pleasant so that we can best digest our food and head into the evening and our time of rest in a better state of mind than maybe we were hours prior. That kind of, um, you know, being sort of riled up in the evenings makes it particularly hard for people to fall asleep and have a good night's sleep. I'm speaking with Dr. Geeta Maker-Clark. She practices integrative family medicine at North Shore University Health System. She's also the coordinator of integrative medical education for the University of Chicago's Pritzker School of Medicine. We've been talking about the news cycle from a medical perspective, from a family doctor perspective. And Dr. Maker-Clark, when we think about the whole idea of getting back to the basics, I wonder how you as a parent and a doctor and someone who I know, uh, as you said, finds yourself occasionally outraged by what's happening in the news. What advice do you have as someone who straddles all of these worlds for parents particularly who are listening to this conversation about how to handle it? Yeah, I I think, um, you know, this is, this is me speaking, giving advice to myself as much as anyone else. I am a parent of adolescents. I see adolescents in my practice and I'm just as outraged as everybody else. So some of the things that I think are helpful to remember are that for a child, their work is going to school and playing. So when I think about a long day that I have in the clinic, you know, where I've seen some really difficult patients and some really sick people, I come home and I need time to decompress and I need time to take some deep breaths or maybe get some fresh air before I start diving into the evening's activities. And I think we need to be just as considerate with our children as we would like to be for ourselves. So to check in with your child's mood when you're picking them up from school or when you get home from work and seeing where they're at before we sort of start in on a conversation or share with them some of the happenings of the day that are important to us. Um, Check in, see where they're at, take a deep breath yourself, hit the pause button, be mindful of what you want to share with your child and whether they're interested in hearing about it. The truth is most of our children are going to be hearing about current events, whether it's through us or not. So do they need to hear the steady onslaught of our thoughts every day, or can we give them a break from that and get really curious about what they are interested in? And I don't mean to say we shouldn't be talking politics with our children because, of course, these are precious times to get them involved and activated and engaged. But I do think we need to be balanced and mindful about how we share that uh, desire for them to be involved and how we present it because it really needs to come from our children. The interest needs to come from them and on their terms. And I see when, uh, you know, I talk to kids in my clinic who are having a lot of difficulty with concentrating at school or problems with sleeping, um, oftentimes they don't feel 
like they're getting rest at home. And I do think that these conversations can help them, these, you know, comforting conversations or even just silence and time for them to decompress can help them treat the home as a place of sanctuary and safety rather than another place of work. And Dr. Maker-Clark, when we think about the whole idea of maybe even not just not that we are completely avoiding politics with our kids, but also the idea of when when you feel like they are, when it is appropriate to engage them. I wonder, as we're seeing so many different protests and people, no matter what political side you're on, protests or marches or people getting maybe more people who are involved in running for office or political campaigns. When we're thinking about mm-hmm. adolescents, how do you, how would you, what do you think about involving them in that? Yeah, I know. I think it's, it's wonderful and it's important and it's necessary. I mean, the fact is everything that we're raging about has a direct impact on our youth, right? That this is, this is their time that their generation will be most affected by the happenings of the world right now. It's really about how we have the conversations and how we can help model positive coping strategies around the things we see that, that instill so much outrage. So I think we do a great favor to our children by encouraging them to vote, by getting them involved in volunteer work in causes that are important to them, you know, really sitting with them and finding out what are the causes that are most important to them and helping them find their way to do community service around that. And also teaching them how to cope with difficult situations by modeling, taking a walk in the evening or taking some deep breaths or listening to music or just having a time where you sort of say, it's time to eat dinner and we're not going to talk about anything unpleasant at dinner. And these are, these are important habits to cultivate as a child that can be modeled by us. And they're not just helpful for our youth, they're helpful for us. And when we think about, we've been talking a lot about adolescence. I wanted to ask you about younger children in particular, um, when we're thinking about our younger, almost teens or even younger than that, who maybe a lot of these conversations involve things they don't even really know that much about. Uh, I wonder how you think, what advice you give for families in terms of thinking about what's, how do they determine what's appropriate conversations for younger children? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think if you have younger children who, you know, again, remembering that the brain is is developing so rapidly and is so plastic, they probably aren't going to be in a a space to be able to best understand much of what's going on in current politics. I mean, I don't think sexual assault and rape and gun violence and school shootings are necessarily appropriate conversations to be having with children, um, even below 12 they're hearing a lot of this out in the world already. So clarifying and asking children what they've heard about and then clarifying, I think is an important role that we play as teachers and doctors and parents. However, I don't know if it's so important for us to be introducing fearful concepts to them at an age where they can't understand them and they can't do anything about them except be scared. Yeah, that's a really important point about being scared. Um, We're just about finished here. Dr. Maker-Clark, I just wanted to ask you what you like to do as a family. You were talking about cooking and taking a break, taking a walk, other things you like to do to cope with all of this. Mm. 
I, I like to get outside. I think we have a real deficit of nature, you know, experiences in nature in general. And I just feel like getting outside and doing anything, whether it's going for a walk or playing basketball in the alley and the basketball that our neighbors have put up, um, anything like that with my kids always feels like just a great break and a great sort of reset button. And um, quite honestly, with one of my kids, he's sort of interested in watching a show on Netflix that he thinks is really funny. And I'll watch that with him just so that the two of us can do something together that he finds enjoyable, even if it's, you know, not the number one thing for what I would like to be doing with my time. <laughs> That's, um, so, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Dr. Geetha uh, Mega Clark is, uh, practices integrative family medicine at North, North Shore University Health System in Evanston. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Support for the 21st comes from Cranert Art Museum at the University of Illinois, presenting video, sound, and sculpture by Irish artists Gareth Kennedy and Sarah Brown in the exhibition Kennedy Brown, The Special Relationship, opening October 4th at 5.30 p.m. More at kam.illinois.edu. Welcome back to the 21st. Thanks for listening. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Today marks the opening day for the Supreme Court's new term. And without a ninth justice to fill the empty seat, it may be that the court has been tinkering with the topic, docket. And what of that empty seat? Well, last week, more than 20 million people watched the intense Senate hearing on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, including emotional testimony from Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, who has accused Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her when both of them were in high school, something he has vigorously denied. Following this, the Senate moved ahead with a procedural vote on Kavanaugh's nomination, but is expected to put off a final floor vote until the FBI finishes an investigation of these allegations this week. The court, however, is moving forward as it always has. And joining me to talk about what's in store for the Supreme Court this year are legal experts and professors Tanya Jacoby from Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law and Matthew Sag from Loyola University of Chicago. They're the co-founders of SCOTUS OA. That's a website that analyzes Supreme Court oral arguments, and they're at our studio in Evanston at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. Tanya, Matthew, welcome to the 21st. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. It's Tanya Jacoby, by the way. Oh, sorry about that. That's okay. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And for both of you, I wonder, I mean, when we're thinking about 20 million people watching the Supreme Court uh, nomination hearings last week, that's not your normal court watching uh, population. And I wonder what it's like, what you all think it's like, those of you who watch the Supreme Court closely, what it's like to have the Supreme Court back in session today, given everything that happened last week. Tanya? Well, the Supreme Court's going to pretend that nothing unusual is going on at all. I can guarantee that. Uh, there'll be no mention. They'll just go ahead with their cases, and uh, and there'll be no indication that there's this huge controversy going on around them. And that's pretty standard behavior for the justices to just ignore politics, pretend that they're not affected by it whatsoever, even if they are. 
and Matthew, even if if they're going to pretend that it isn't, I wonder what uh, this does mean for the atmosphere in the court, uh, whether or not they're going to acknowledge it or not. Well, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see the dog that didn't bark. You're going to see the court taking uh, a lot of more boring cases, cases that don't seem to provoke intense partisan division. That's certainly what they did last time. There were only eight members of the court. And I think in the current climate, they're going to feel the need to do that even more. So if you look at this morning's case, it's about a essentially statutory interpretation of, you know, when is a frog habitat not a frog habitat? It's probably would not get on the front page except for it's the opening case of the term. Right. And Tanya, how does it work in terms of when thing, what things are scheduled for the docket? Are things do I know sometimes this is set way far in advance in terms of what they're going to hear, but how often are things changed because of, in this case, having eight justices instead of nine on the court? Well, some of the cases uh, would have been uh, taken before all of this controversy came up, but um, uh, the Supreme Court would have known that there was going to be a, uh, a probabilistic chance that there would be only eight justices at the beginning of the term. So they would have scheduled them accordingly to start off with the cases that they think are least likely to split 4-4. Now we say this, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't actually have anyone inside the court who's going to tell us that that's how they operate, but this is what we observe. And so it's, uh, it's not unusual to start off with some with some cases that are not as exciting. Um, but having said that, there are some cases in this term. We, we don't want to give the impression that they're not interesting cases this term. They're just not the big uh, front page news story cases. But there are cases of, of great significance. Mm. So let's get into some of those cases. Um, one of the most significant ones, I believe, is scheduled to be up tomorrow. Tanya, that was actually rescheduled from the last session. That's Gundy versus the United States. Can you tell us about that case? So this uh, this is a case that could have huge significance or it could just sort of move the ball a little bit. This is about the Federal Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act. And this has come before the court a number of times before. And essentially, this is the law that says that sex offenders have to register um, and various restrictions apply to them. Uh, but the the interesting part of this act is that it applies, it can apply retrospectively if the Attorney General deems that it should apply to a particular class of offenders who offend prior to the law's enactment. Now, there's been challenges, statutory challenges to that before, but now there's a challenge that essentially says you can't do that at all. Uh, essentially, you're giving the Attorney General the power to legislate a class of people that a, a piece of legislation applies to, and that's contrary to what's called the non-delegation doctrine, in that Congress is not meant to delegate its legislative function uh, to an Attorney General. Now, the reality is that since the New Deal, Congress has... Uh, delegated huge amounts of its legislative power to agencies. Agencies write reg regulation all the time that has force of law. So most of the law that governs our everyday lives is a product of uh, agency-made regulation, i.e. the executive writing laws. And now in this case, I think that there's an interesting argument to say um, that by giving the power to the Attorney General um, and giving absolutely no... Um, control over his discretion whatsoever. It's completely up to him that that's contrary to the non-delegation doctrine. And I actually think there's an argument that it's, uh, it should be contrary to due process, but that's not the focus that the case is taking. Uh, so if the court were to agree, then that could put in jeopardy huge amounts of the way that the modern admin administrative system 
operates in the government. I don't think that they're likely to take such a huge step, but certainly Justice Thomas has indicated his willingness to turn back the clock to 1936. Justice Gorsuch has given some indications that he shares those sympathies, and even Justice Ginsburg has uh, raised concerns along those lines. Uh, so it could be a really big case, or it could actually turn out to be a small case where the court doesn't do all that much at all. And Tanya, can you remind us, so they will hear arguments, how that works. So those arguments will be heard tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Does that normally last a couple of days? And then we'll expect to hear an opinion on that in a couple of months? Uh, so you have one hour of oral argument, typically, and uh, and then it can take any time from uh, a few, uh, a month or two all the way through to June. And it just depends on how many opinions there are in the case, uh, whether there's a lot of negotiation back and forth with the justices, how much research is involved by the opinion writers. So uh, we just have no idea when, when a case like that will come down. Usually the most important cases come down towards the end of the term because uh, they're sort of the most fraught in the process. Matthew, I wanted to ask you about another case. Uh, that's a class action suit, Frank versus, is it Gauss? Why is, yeah. yeah, can you tell us about this case and why this is important? Sure. So the substance of this case involves a, a privacy violation from Google. Google, when you would go on to their search engine and search for something, they would actually, they would direct you to internet websites but they would also share the information of what you search for with those websites. And that's a violation under federal privacy law, or at least that's the issue that was settled in the class action. In this class action, Google didn't actually change the way that it operated after the fact, and no one who was supposedly injured by this practice ever saw any money. All the money in the class settlement was divided between the lawyers, and organizations like the Berkman Center for Internet Studies at Harvard University. And this is done through a mechanism called Cypre. Cypre is actually an old Norman French expression for near enough is good enough. Oh, okay. <laughs> not, it's actually not what it means. Okay. But it's, it's close enough. What, what the Cypre principle and it actually comes from trust law. It's about what do we do when we've got a bunch of money and we can't use it for exactly the way it was supposed to be used, i.e., in this case, compensating victims. You know, we try and sort of figure out the next best thing. So in this case, there are 129 million people in the class, each of whom were owed four cents. And there's just no way to spend less than four cents getting those people their money. So it didn't seem satisfactory to give the money back to Google. So the, the usual thing is to pick an organization, um, such as at Loyola, we have the Institute for Consumer Antitrust Studies, which is an excellent candidate for all of your Cypre awards. <laughs> um, an institute like that. The issue in this case is... It could be really broadly whether these kind of awards are legitimate at all, which would have major effects on the incentives to bring class actions. And it would also have uh, a non-trivial effect on organizations uh, who rely on these Cypre awards. But I think probably what you'll see is just the court will 
give some guidelines for how lower courts should exercise that discretion. Because at the moment, there don't really seem to be any guidelines other than sort of a basic sense of fairness. We're talking with Matthew Sag, a law professor at Loyola University of Chicago, and Tanya Jacoby, a professor of law at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law. They both have a site. It's called SCOTUS OA. It's a website that analyzes Supreme Court oral arguments. Tanya, before we get into another case, I'm curious, uh, your site is centered around the idea of oral arguments. And you mentioned this before that, for example, in the case uh, Gundy versus United States, they get an hour of oral arguments. For those of us whose court experience hasn't gone beyond law and order, I wonder if you can help us understand the whole idea of why oral arguments, uh, in what ways do oral arguments help us understand judicial behavior, how we think the judges are likely to rule? So oral argument used to be the main mechanism by which the justices got their information. And now they rely much more on written briefs, but they still have this hour where the advocates get up and make their case and the justices ask, they, ask them questions, or at least that's what they're supposed to do. We often see them making a lot more comments and, and advocating, as, uh, as we showed in a recent article. But the idea is that the advoc- there's a back and forth between the justices and the advocates, and, they try- and you see the justices trying out ideas, um, Uh, asking hypotheticals about future applications of any rule that they're considering. And it's really interesting. And one of the reasons it's interesting is that we see the justices, we get a look into their decision-making process, the sort of considerations that they're taking into account, both pragmatic and legal, uh, and the the difficulties that they're having with any given rule, the dangers that they think that that might be created. And so we get this this look at them when they're a bit more relaxed. They're not perfectly polishing their opinions, like when they have when they are in written form, but we see them a little bit more uh, unguarded and asking questions. And so we can analyze what we do uh, on SCOTUS OA is we analyze empirically what's going on. So we can look for patterns in their behavior. For example, how uh, one of the articles that I wrote that got a lot of attention was about the interruption of the female justices by the male advocates and by the male justices. So that's an interesting behavioral aspect. But we can also look at how often they talk about particular types of topics or how often they use particular kinds of language and what changes we've seen over time. So I mentioned the difference between questions and comments. Matthew and I showed in a recent article that the justices are actually uh, using up almost a quarter more of the time than uh, than they used to and taking that time away from the advocates. But they're not asking any more questions. They're just making comments. And so they're engaging in this kind of advocacy on behalf of a particular side rather than letting the advocates advocate. Mm, that's interesting, Matthew. And when we think about the oral argument, I was thinking more about the idea of how important is it for the people who are arguing the case to be able to present that in a clear and I imagine answers questions in a satisfactory way. But Matthew, do you also have a sense that now the court itself is in some ways, and I've heard this conversation before, that maybe the court is more political than it has been in the past in terms of the justices expressing individual opinions? I think that either the court is more political or they've always been this political, but now they're more transparent about it. Um, And I think what what we've seen, you have to sort of roll this back to the mid-1990s with the Republican Revolution and the way American politics became really polarised. Now that you have a polarised Congress, they're going to appoint polarising judges. And so I think that the court 
is, you know, it's not that these people are necessarily individually partisan, but they've been left a partisan process. Uh, and I think with increasing reliability is how they're going to behave. So we don't get Justice Souter on the court anymore. You know, we don't get Justice Stevens, who's a Republican appointee, but actually you know, voted quite liberally in a lot of cases. And Tony, when we think about that as well, and we think about this uh, right now empty ninth seat, I imagine we don't you don't necessarily see that changing. I'm just thinking back to Senator Jeff Flake saying how he feels like the country is being ripped apart right now. I imagine that we don't necessarily see whether the nominee is Brett Kavanaugh or if it ends up being someone else that that tone will get any better, do we? No, I think it's going to get considerably worse, and I think that could raise real concerns for the for the court in terms of its legitimacy, in terms of people's respect for it as an institution. So if Kavanaugh is confirmed, he'll be probably the second most conservative justice on the court next to Justice Thomas, and that means you'll have a block of five Republican-appointed conservative justices and four Democrat-appointed liberal justices with quite a big ideological gap between them. And uh, what we might see is the Chief Justice sort of move a little to the centre. Uh, we saw Chief Justice Rehnquist become a little bit more centrist when he uh, was promoted to be Chief Justice. Um, and so we might see Roberts do that because I think he is concerned for the legitimacy of the court. But it is concerning that uh, the more the court is polarised, and I think as well as uh, the mechanism that Matthew was mentioning in terms of you know nominating polarised uh, justices, I also think the justices might become more polarised. Studies show that just everyday people, uh, when you survey them, have become much more polarised in their views. Uh, and it's just as reflect the 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 difference the polarization in Congress reflects down into the people, and it also particularly reflects down into um, highly educated and politically engaged people, such as Supreme Court justices. So I think that they might also be behaving differently and behaving in a more polarized fashion. Um, and so I think then when we if we have a truly polarized court, uh, if if someone like Kavanaugh is appointed, then I think that's going to reinforce the polarization with the pub, within the public and how they see the court. If they see the court constantly handing down these five four liberal conservative uh, divided opinions on really salient topics, like if you have five uh, uh, male conservative justices saying that women don't have any meaningful right to choose over what happens to their body, for example. Yeah, and it I sounds think that's like it'll gonna... continue to be, mm. I imagine, uh, even further polarization. I want to thank, uh, sorry to stop you there, but we've, oh, okay. uh, we're out of time. I want to thank Tanya Jacoby, uh, professor of law at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law, Matthew Sag at Loyola. We'll tweet out links to their sites. Go to OA. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, Thanks for tuning into the 21st and Nyla Boodoo. We've been talking a lot about national politics, but on Mondays, we like to spend some time focusing on Illinois politics. And since February, a nonpartisan panel of women in government have been working on ways to stop a culture of harassment in state politics, especially on campaigns. 
You maybe remember hearing some of these stories on this program, but these women went all across the state and talked to people who were affected by this issue. Last week, they released their findings to the public. I'm joined now by one of the co-founders of that panel. Representative Carol Ammons is a Democrat. She represents Illinois' 103rd House District. That's the Champaign-Urbana area. She's in studio with me here in Urbana. Representative Ammons, welcome back to the 21st. Thank you very much for having me. On the line with us also is Carrie Lester. She's a longtime political journalist, now an author, most recently of No, My Place, Reflections on Sexual Harassment in Illinois Government and Politics. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for being here as well. Hi, Nyla. Hi, Representative Ammons. Nice to be with you. Good morning. Carrie, there's been so many news stories over the past year when we're thinking about sexual harassment and sexual assault. I wonder if you can remind us about this story in Illinois and how this panel came about in the first place? Sure. Um, Well, first of all, I think we need to step back to about a year ago when a letter began circulating that alleged um, a rampant culture of harassment in Illinois politics and government. And this was signed by more than 200 women, some of who were um, representatives, some of who were were staffers, lobbyists, and even a few reporters like myself. I know that I personally viewed uh, the letter as a civility issue, not a partisan issue. So, that came about, um, it kind of cracked open um, the, the issue statewide. And then after that, we had some, some serious complaints come to light. We had the um, Elena Hampton case in um, House uh, Speaker Michael Madigan's political office, um, where a campaign worker um, alleged that her supervisor um, had, had um, asked her out and persisted in a way that made her feel uncomfortable, and then she felt retaliated upon. And that, as well as some other revelations in the State House in the subsequent months, led to um, the creation of, of a panel um, that, that, as you mentioned, Representative Ammons is serving on and recently completed a report on, as well as a number of hearings in the state legislature on the issue of sexual harassment and how to deal with it. Representative Ammons, so you, uh, Comptroller Susanna Mendoza, Senator Melinda Bush, uh, did a listening tour across the state for this report. And Carrie's just telling us about the stories that have made news headlines. Who did you hear from and and what, what stories stood out for you as you were listening to women Uh, sharing their stories about their experiences in politics. We spoke to women throughout the entire state. We visited uh, about six cities um, during our um, uh, listening sessions, what we call them listening sessions. And what we found was a common thread from Champaign to Edwardsville, where women really felt that they were uh, being put in positions or in a culture that not only demeaned them, but really challenged them as individuals And because of the rampant nature of sexual harassment, sometimes campaign workers aren't protected. And so what we found out is, okay, we have this, we have a governmental entity, which is a House and Senate Sexual Harassment Commission, right? So they're doing the government side, but nobody was focusing on the political organizations. And I mean all political organizations. So we took up the mantle to collect the stories of many of the women who were just campaign workers, some of them. Some of them were... um, attempting to be candidates but were dissuaded for reasons like not having children and uh, saying you couldn't be a good candidate if you were LGBT. So some of these things were coming out in the conversations that went in some ways beyond sexual harassment but really talked about the gender politics that we women have to engage in. 
And so for what I saw was a political, a historic moment in politics where we really could make a break, right? These organizations can make a break from this culture of sexual harassment. And that was what we've pulled out and hopefully we're able to capture in this report. Uh, it has significant and specific uh, recommendations to party leadership, whether it's Democrat, Republican, Green, Libertarian, whatever that uh, organization is that you may be a part of. Uh, no woman should have to go through and experience what some of the women shared with us. And we did demonstrate some of their stories uh, directly in the report. And I wonder if you could share, you mentioned a few. So just to be clear, you said some women were told they couldn't run for office because they didn't have children. Because they didn't have children, yeah. So, you know, when, when and I, I believe your um, guest on the line, remind me of her name. Carrie. Carrie, thank you. Uh, Carrie, I'm sure, can attest to the process by which candidates are recruited. And some of that process includes really arbitrary, very male-dominated kind of concepts. Well, in this particular district, we need a person who is a soccer mom and have children and uh, run them around town all day long. She's perfect for this office, right? Or a woman who is an athlete who's independent thinker. No, we don't need her. And so they, they have this formula that they were using to decide who their candidates were going to be. And what we said is we want women to be to come forward without the barriers, without of any of those things that would never be posited to a man. We don't want those barriers in a place of women. And what we heard from the women in Edwardsville who were running for office currently, currently running for office, she said that she experienced so much pushback from her male counterparts because they want her to behave in a certain way. In what way is that? It, it, almost in almost subjugating herself to the male-dominated role that is happening in her community, right? And so they wanted her to just go along with whatever their decisions were and not raise objections. Otherwise, she'll be called aggressive, right? She's too aggressive, and they don't want to hear from her. And so she's been pushing back on that for a number of years. This woman is elected currently, and she's on the ballot this year. So what we saw is we don't want to fit into these boxes anymore, right? We don't want these political parties telling us what we have to be about or like in order to be a good candidate. Carrie, as Representative Ammons is describing this culture, I wonder how uh, pervasive it is. I mean, it sounds like, as Representative Ammons is saying, this is the this is part of just cultural expectations are that women and female politicians have to behave a certain way. I wonder what stories you heard uh, as you were writing your book that reflected that. Absolutely, uh, Nyla. As you know, you and I have talked to a number of times about this. Um, uh, in my book profiled 17 different women across spectrums of, of Illinois politics and government. That goes from the Illinois Attorney General to lobbyists to staffers to to uh, attorneys and, and members of the state legislature, too. And um, they all described some common experiences of having to play by a different set of rules than their male counterparts. Um, Chicago City Clerk Anna Valencia came down to work in Springfield for uh, about three years' time before she she was working up in City Hall, and she said that an older female staffer took, took her aside when she was pretty new, and she said, you know, do not go out at night. Do not go out by yourself. If you are out, you know, if it's a business dinner, make sure you're home by 9 o'clock. You don't want to be labeled a slut. And she was kind of taken aback, you know, no, nobody's giving um, men this lecture. And uh, what I think is really 
applaudable and comprehensive about uh, Representative Ammon's, uh, Bush and Mendoza's report is that it examines the issue from a lot of different perspectives, including um, dating and alcohol consumption. Now, those are going to be hard things to enforce, but one of the things that I've certainly noticed in my time around the Capitol is that the State House is surrounded by this ring of bars. There's not a whole lot else to do, and I think that that alcohol blurs some already very blurry lines, and and women um, women feel very boxed in and, and that they can't behave in a way that um, they can automatically clearly fight back. They feel like they have to, to, to adhere to a different set of rules. Mm. And Representative Ammons, I see you nodding your head. I wonder, uh, what do you think are the most important conclusions you came to in your report in terms of what actions you think should be taken? Yeah, I think as, as uh, Carrie just explained, what we've recommended, and of course we are not... Um, our panel wasn't designed to force political parties to do anything. We are strongly encouraging all of the political parties to implement the recommendations in the report. We want them to adopt clear and non-negotiable policies that go beyond the law, meaning campaign workers are not protected, right? Some some things, even lobbyists, are not under the same kind of uh uh, HR rules that we would be in a regular work environment. And when you're talking about things like alcohol and dating, exactly. I mean, really those hard. are really difficult areas to, I wouldn't, I don't want to say legislate, but cha- I guess even change culture and behavior. But you, you really can. And in, in, in some of these places, um, it really is up to the campaigns, right? It's up to that campaign. I have campaign events all the time. I don't provide alcohol at my campaign events because I don't want someone to leave one of my events and unfortunately get into an accident because they've been drinking. So th- this is a this is a self-regulated process. We've made it as a recommendation because we think it's that important. And we've heard stories of women who may have been uh, put in compromising positions because of the the free nature of some of these uh, social events. We don't want to stop social events or say that you can't have them, but they really should be regulated better, and that's up to the campaigns to do that. But we also want those campaigns to take seriously the anti-harassment uh, policies that we've recommended. We want them to require all campaign workers to take sexual harassment training and be serious about it, right? Because we also heard stories about Women who, yeah, okay, now you say I have to take this sexual harassment training and my coworker next to me is giggling the entire time, aren't really taking it seriously. Or it's just some online course yeah. that's really just legally Click, 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 click right. and we're done, right? Um, we want to Im- implement this as a cultural shift. Like any other training you would do in your workplace, this has got to be taken very seriously. And it's not just for political organizations. Any organization can benefit from a significant focus on anti-harassment uh, training for their employees. And I think that helps to, to change the culture as well. Carrie, when we're thinking about a cultural shift, I just wonder when we look at the numbers of women who are running for office in Illinois, where, what does that look like in terms of how much you think that may end up changing culture as well? Well, uh, I, I think that we're doing slightly better than the national average. I was looking at statistics by the National Conference of State Legislatures this morning, and nationwide, I believe it's about 25% of all elected office holders are women. Um, in Illinois, um, in the state legislature, and Representative Ammons, correct me if I'm wrong, if I was doing the math right, it's about 37%. So yes. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're headed in the right 
we're headed in the right direction. But I think emboldening women, um, also, you know, putting more women in positions of power, both on campaign levels and in the legislative level in terms of recruitment, you know, what does an ideal um, candidate look like? I think we're beyond the mom on a mission prototype. You know, we, mm-hmm. we need to kind of enter a new era. And I think, you know, having more women in office and at, at the top in political structures will, will only aid that. And I, th- I think we've we've added a s- specific goal in our report that leadership, no matter where they are, if there's an opening, as we've had uh, in Springfield over the last several uh, months, uh, we want them to intentionally, intentionally select women to be uh, appointed to those positions. What we see happening, we're at 36 percent kind of better than a national average, but why aren't we at 50% representation? Since we're 50% of the population, we really need to work intentionally on making that happen. And in many cases, women have difficulty raising the amount of money that's necessary to run a, a, a decent campaign. And that is part of the you know, traditional all-boy system that they got going on in these political arenas, that they are accustomed to having male candidates and they are accustomed to providing the resources to them, but we want them to tie funding, meaning this this report recommends the tying of funding to candidates that are serious about uh, creating a culture of anti-harassment and sexual harassment in, in particular. We want them to be specific about recruiting women, providing resources for them to move local level, state level, and national, and we want them to do this with uh, intention. We just have about a minute left, and I wanted to ask you, Representative Ammons, what it was like to be talking about this report last week uh, <laughs> when we think about the national conversation, the hearings, uh, more than 20 million people who were watching what was going on at a national level. You know, I am um, reminded of I have a small book uh, on the Supreme Court decisions since 1877, and so they highlight several of those decisions in that book. What really came to my mind at that time was how pivotal the Justice Tanney's decision was in Dred, in the Dred Scott case, right? When you think about that, that set the, the real trajectory for African-Americans to fight for civil rights for another 100 years based on that one ruling. And now we're talking about putting a gentleman on the court, on the highest court in the land, who has potentially a history of sexual assault or abuse against women. That should not happen in 2018. I believe that the GOP is making a huge mistake attempting to push uh, President Trump's uh, nominee forward without regard to the impact on the country. And that has been what we've seen over and over again under this administration. And I hope people will continue to push back on that issue. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but I want to thank Representative Carol Ammons for being with us from Illinois' 103rd District. Carrie Lester for being with us as well. She's the author of Know My Place, Reflections on Sexual Harassment in Illinois Government and Politics. Thanks, guys. Tomorrow on the program, uh, we are going to be talking and focusing on the flu, particularly looking at flu deaths. The 21st is a production of Illinois Public Media. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. See you back here tomorrow.